Welcome to episode 4 of Explore History's Dear CB, A Soldier's Experience of War Through Letters. We left off the last episode with letter 13, so we begin with letter 14. We left off last episode at letter... We left off last episode at letter 18, so here we begin with letter 19 of Stuart's account. Dear CB, life has certainly changed for me. The mode of living and of thinking is quite different nowadays from what it used to be in the regiment. Liaison work with an allied force is, in a way, far removed from that of a regimental officer, yet it is doubtful if you could be a satisfactory and useful liaison officer if one had never seen regimental duty. Mentally the work is more interesting, and yet in some respects not so satisfying. One meets more important people of higher rank than hitherto, and yet one commands nothing except a few clerks. I remember when I was with the regiment thinking that I could do a more important job than command 30 men, and now, after a few months of this work, I'm not so sure. And yet this job has many advantages. Firstly, one is working with a foreign division, and has every opportunity of learning about the customs, habits, and outlook of a foreign people. One has free access to all the senior officers and to the units. Let me say here and now that I realize the Poles in Poland have many enemies and many friends. On the first few days of my contact with them, I knew what category I was going to join. I trust and hope that I will be a friend of Poland's until I die. Our job here is chiefly to advise the Poles on British authorities. I'm going to, I'm going to say very little to you about the Poles, either from a military or, and especially, a political viewpoint. We who live and work with them have every opportunity of studying both these points. To talk of them whilst the war is on might lead to plenty of trouble. The Poles are born fighters, and the more I see of them, the more I like them. Division HQ have their own mess, and we are billeted in a house. Billeting in Mosul is excellent. Division HQ is in a magnificent new Iraqi school, and all division headquarter officers and those of the HQ of one of the battalions lives in a house in the town. As one moves up and down and all over the Middle East, one visits many towns and villages, and from the romantic angle one is often disappointed, but Mosul comes right up to expectations. One rides on to the higher ground about a mile to the south of the city, as I do before breakfast most mornings. One sees the place compact and neat, with dozens of minarets rising out of the density of the town. One of these minarets from which, which the faithful are called to pray. One of these minarets from which the faithful are called to prayer has a distant slant and resembles the Tower of Pisa. To one side of the city flows the slow. To one side of the city flows the slow, turgid. To one side of the city flows the slow, turgid Tigris, and on the other side is the old town of Nineveh, and a little way away from it the buried walls of the ancient city of Nineveh. The European quarter of Mosul is very small and very clean. Few English people are here, just a handful of old and commercial men. Our consulate is a great stone building on rising ground looking like an austere castle. There's a British council office too. The British council is a much abused institution. It is wrongly called arty crafty. 
The British Council in Mosul does very good work, and the musical and discussion evenings are well attended, both by British and Iraqis. Next to the villa where we are housed live Major Kinch and his attractive Irish wife. He is a district officer, and this is a difficult job. One has to act both as an intelligence officer and an administrator. Mosul is a nerve center and is also the metropolis favored by powerful Kurdish tribes. I've been into Kurdistan. It's like fairyland. One half of the city is completely out of bounds to troops, absolutely and completely. Now the remaining half, 50%, is also out of bounds. No one is allowed on the tram on the north side of the Nenevec Street. The out-of-bounds areas I have twice inspected, accompanying the military police. We went into the brothel district and into practically every house of ill fame. Paradise Alley, as they call the principal brothel street here, consists of a long, small lane, very dark and badly lit. It was intensely cold when we went there, and little braziers burnt outside each house. On stools were the girls not at work, and they were warming their toes over the brazier. The houses consisted of little courtyards with three or four rooms leading off. The police would bang hardly at the doors, and the girls would have to open up whether they were at work or not. At some of these places, the police were greeted in a friendly fashion, and others they were not. Very few of the girls were what you would call pretty, though some of them were not too bad. A few were fantastic, without noses and a bandage pulled across their face. One can certainly see the seamy side of life. I'm sure all sorts of intrigues go on in this place. They must do so because being so near the Turkish border and it's quite simple for those who have an intense desire to slip over the border. Of course, all the best stories about the war are going to be written after the war is over. In one way, we're very lucky because there's plenty of sport. There's an Indian mule company here, and Evelyn Broughton and I occasionally borrow some of their heavy hoofed charges. Not far away is the Iraqi cavalry who lend me their horses whenever I want one. I also have a little Arab pony punch that I bought myself. There's a big RAF station at the back of our villa where we play rugger and soccer, and out in the Iraqi wilds there's plenty of good shooting. One of the most beautiful places I've ever been to is Ahmadiyya in Turkestan, a five hours motor journey into the snow-covered mountains. It lies in a narrow valley on top of a steep little hill which lies in the center of the valley, like the lid on top of a coffee pot. Overhanging it on each side are great mountains. The Kurds are a fine-looking, hawk-nosed, upstanding people who wear very colorful costumes and carry on them great knives and much bulleted bandoliers. As far as I'm just going away on sick leave, as for me, I'm just going away on sick leave, having been in hospital for three weeks with jaundice, a most depressing disease. It was not helped by the fact that this hospital was sunk underneath some caves. The sisters were British, Indian, and Polish. Quite a collection. Yours, Stuart. Letter 20 Dear CB, People paddling in the sea at Alex or Haifa at this time of year complain of the heat. I used to, but I complained in all innocence. Now it is hot. It is scorching. I'm writing this sleepily after lunch, and on this July day in Iraq, the temperature in the shade registers 120 Fahrenheit. So it is hot, you can see, and yet it's not unbearable. Nature adapts itself. The authorities take all the sensible precautions possible. All ranks are encouraged to drink plenty of water, and we're issued with salt tablets, of which we're supposed to take five a day. People go about with salt, 
brought out of their bodies by perspiration crusted to their armpits. When you clear the sweat salt, you start to worry. After coming back from my sick leave, I managed to get as far as Cairo. I left the Carpathian Division and joined Krasoa Division, and we are now stationed at Kirkuk. Kir we are now stationed at Kirkuk, which is a great oil center set on sandy and barren land. The town of Kirkuk, situated about a couple of miles from the refinery, is not unpicturesque. The oil refinery is not picturesque. If I knew a little more about machinery, I might be able to describe the place to you. But from where our camp is, it looks like an inferno. There are ugly pieces of equipment dotted about the landscape and flames pouring from fat, squat chimneys. This division is training hard now. However, except when there are full day exercises and schemes, there's not, not much done after 10 or 10.30 in the morning. We get up very early, have a light breakfast, and we're out training from 6 in the morning until 10. Then knock off until about half past four and work for about a couple of hours in the evening. Very often there are night operations. The great boon, the one blessing here, is that the oil companies allow us to use their swimming pool. And this is the best of its type I have seen in the Middle East. Before I came out here, whilst I was still in England, I used to believe that people who worked in the oil companies out here earned vast sums of money and lived in exquisite palaces, but this is not the case. The bungalows in Kirkuk are squat, unesthetic, unattractive-looking things arranged in a barrack-like formation. They're not uncomfortable to live in. If they were, I do not suppose any would want to live in them. They're equipped with fans, electric light, and a refrigerator. I suppose the people, the civilians who work out here, must be happy, but it's not a place I'd like to work in. The great event here, with its tragic sequel, was the visit of General Sikorsky, who... The great event here, with this tragic sequel, was the visit of General Sikorsky, who, whatever political history may say, was a great man and very respected, and in some cases, loved by the Poles. Poles are a nation to whom pageantry naturally appeals. At the present time, anything symbolical to them has great attraction. Whatever future they realize it is going to be one of difficulty and probably uncertainty and therefore they welcome a chance to show their unity to the world. The expected visit of General Sikorsky was long talked about and considerable plans were made. He arrived safely enough at Kirkuk Aerodrome and went up to Corps headquarters. The day came when he was to inspect the Krasowa division. The missing section went to the appointed parade. Uh, the missing section went to the, the missing section went to the appointed parade ground early in the morning. At first, we took our place in the great human square that had been formed, and here we stayed for the inspection. Later, for the religious services, we went to some benches along the senior members of the division staff. A square was formed on three sides by officers and men of the entire division, and the fourth by the erection of a field pulpit and with some benches and chains set up in front of it. Functionally, at this appointed time, General Sikorsky, accompanied by Generals Amlers, uh, the GOC, the Polish Army in the East, arrived and the inspection began. 
A large scout car toured very slowly round the square, with the entire division at the salute. When the inspection, which seemed to take ages to those of us who had our hands to our caps, was completed, the service began. The bishop began, and then General Sikorsky said a few words. When all this was over, the formation broke up and went away to prepare for the march um, past. A refreshment tent had been set up for some time. A refreshment tent had been set up for some of the officers, and here we had some tea and ice cream. March past was the most impressive military spectacle I have ever seen, and thrilled me far more than anything uh, else of its type I've ever observed. A large platform had been fixed up for spectators. Just out in front of this was a small saluting base on which stood the, gen the generals Anders and Sikorsky with their ADCs flanking the base. Opposite was a Polish brass band. This actually led the parade and then took up its position. Nearly 14,000 men parched past that morning, heads held high. Whatever else the Poles dream of, they, they do dream about the future of Poland. Infantry battalions stamped down the road. Great trailers pulled ak-ak guns. The field of trillery rolled past, and the reconnaissance regiment in scout cars and motorcycles passed in perfect formation. It was a great morning. Some little time later, the same division paraded on the same plot of ground where they had stood for the Supreme Commander's inspection. They were grouped in the same formation. They had gathered here to listen to a funeral oration from the acting divisional commander. A funeral oration for General Soskowski had been killed in an air crash in Gibraltar. It was a sad scene. Sometimes I think it seems to be the destiny of Poland to suffer thus. Of course, a new man will rise to carry them on towards their heritage. Such a nation from such a people, leaders are never lacking. When I was with my regiment, one came across the drama of human life. The man whose wife had deserted him. The man who was in debt. The man who was unhappy. Now I come into contact with the drama of a nation's life. Unquestionably, it's more profound. Yours, Stuart. Letter 21. Dear CB, So Christmas has come and gone. We are now into February of 1944. After the heat of Urkuk, after the heat of Kirkuk, I went on to the heat of Baghdad, where I became staff captain at the HQ of the mission, which, incidentally, is now known as BLU, a British liaison unit. How glad I was to get away from Iraq in October. We'd had it there, and I was one of the last of the mission officers to leave. The whole of the Polish army moved down into the Middle East, preparatory to going on to the continent. Palestine was fresh and crisp and marvelously green after Iraq. I went, on the, went out on the full-scale maneuvers, which the whole Polish Corps took part in. And then after the completion of that, we posted to our Cairo office at GHQ to assist with the move to Italy, which is now taking place. I expect you wonder what wartime Cairo is like, having heard so much about it in England and seen it mentioned in the House of Commons. On the military side, let me say that the officers at GHQ aren't gilded glamour boys spending all their spare time dancing with glamorous Axis spies. The reason for this is twofold. One, that officers have precious little spare time, and the other, that Axis spies aren't quite so obvious. If there's one type of person that an officer can be practically guaranteed not to give away military secrets to, it is the cabaret artists and the demi-mondains. 
cabaret artiste. Our hours here are from 815 to 115 and from 1700 hours to 2000 hours, which day after day works out quite a time. We get one day off a week. A third reason why we don't live the high life here is because our pay and allowances just won't admit to it. Cairo is a very expensive city just now. It's true that you can buy practically anything you want, but at what a price. At what a price, my my. There's no petrol rationing and the streets are full of big American limousines. There are comparatively few British cars. Any odd corners that are not taken up by cars are utilized by donkey carts. Although camels are forbidden in the in center of the city, they plod superciliously about in the suburbs. The center of Cairo is like the smart quarter of any big European city and consists of streets of modern shops and blocks of flats and offices, the biggest of which is blank. Biggest of which is the biggest building on the continent of Africa. Center of Cairo is like the smart quarter of any big European city and consists of streets of modern shops and blocks of flats and offices. Cairo's saving grace for Europeans is Gazira Sporting Club, about which I told you in an earlier letter from here in an in a Cairo's saving grace for Europeans is Jazeera Sporting Club, about which I told you in an earlier letter from here, is an oasis of green and exercise in this dusty place. There is another sporting club somewhat similar at Mahdi and one at Heliopolis, although only officers enjoy all the facilities of these clubs. They do not deal for the ORS. Other ranks are really catered for extremely well in Cairo, and there are very few complaints. The Alamein Club has now been constructed, and this is a largest stadium affair where one can watch the rugger, soccer, and hockey matches. In the town, there are plenty of clubs and service canteens. There are several good cinemas with fairly moderate prices. There's generally one or two Enza shows on in the town. There are countless bars, restaurants, and cabarets in Cairo, but the prices are rather high, and they are rather shabby and unsatisfactory. There can hardly be a man who would not prefer to be in the atmosphere of some English pub, even if he does have to drink weak beer. For the officers, there are several hotels and better types of cabarets and restaurants. Incidentally, anyone who thinks that these cabarets swing their music sweet and low until 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning and that beautiful Arab girls come on and do a strip tease are very much mistaken. The cabarets are extremely proper. All drinks have to be off the table by 10.30. The establishment closes down at 12 o'clock sharp. Whiskey and soda, mostly locally produced whiskey, cost two shillings, and a brandy and ginger ale the same. By the time one is paid cover charge, dinner amounts to 10 shillings per head. But it's not in the realm of the entertainment that Cairo can be considered to be expensive, nor is hotel accommodation exorbitant. Private accommodation is the expensive feature and the price of articles and shops. It is impossible for an officer, and practically impossible for an other rank, to move about Cairo without spending money. 
It's not like London where all classes of society can travel happily about the place in buses and tubes. Here the buses and trams are full of native or wogs. So full are they anyway that hundreds of natives seem to be clinging to the sides. Also, for officers, there are practically no places where one can get a cheap meal. Their standard ceiling, and they never fall below. Their standard ceiling, and they never fall below ceiling prices in Cairo for meals. And lunches cost five shillings. They are nothing like Lyon or Soho restaurants where one can drop in for a snack or a cheap meal. The shops are well and amply stocked. They are laden with materials and foods, watches, cameras, and jewelry. But what a price! Yes, it is a strange and fascinating city of contrast. A few minutes and a car separates one from the Mosque of Omar and a green golf course. Some frightful backstreet native quarter and, and Mena House, hotel out of the pyramids. Some frightful backstreet native quarter and Mena House ain't... Some frightful backstreet native quarter and Mena House Hotel out by the pyramids. Shepherd stands ancient majestic in ancient Shepherd stands Shepherd stand in ancient majestic dignity. Two minutes walk away is the out of bounds brothel area. One can see a modern talkie straight from Africa. One can see a modern talkie at the air-conditioned metro and down the street, so to speak, is an old louse-infested cinema showing an ancient Arabic film. One crosses one of the bridges over the Nile and sharing the causeway is a camel, an American auto, a bicycle, a donkey cart, and an Englishman in tweeds and a native in a gala... and a native in a... Galabia. There are churches of practically every known religion, and plenty of people in Cairo possessing none. It is one of the most cosmopolitan places in the world. Perhaps its greatest mysteries and its deepest interests are unknown to us Europeans. But what wouldn't I give to walk across St. James's Park right now? Yours, Stuart. Letter 22. Dear C.B., Many of my friends and acquaintances have been killed in this war. That is not an unusual fact these days of mass destruction, but each time someone dies, a person of whom one is fond, something of oneself dies with them. It's as though a branch has been pulled off a tree. Another branch may grow in its place, but the tree's not quite the same. Hutton. But the tree is not quite the same, nor is life. Looking back over the short interval since these deaths occurred, the sorrow that I felt is accentuated, particularly in the case of two of my fellow regimental officers. This does not mean that the death of John Macefield, Bill Kempner, or Ken Graves affected me any the less because of the killing of Flash Kellett, MP, our regiment's colonel, for a long period before, uh, long period, but before I write a word concerning him. I must say I realize there are hundreds of people far, far more qualified to write about him than myself. Though I'd heard of him in peacetime, I never met him. I served under him during this war. As we wend our way through this life, either wearily or energetically, we meet perhaps 
perhaps half a dozen men whom we look upon as truly remarkable. Flash Kellett went to Cheltenham, Sandhurst, and joined the Irish Guards. After he left the Guards, he joined the Yeomanry, and a short while before the war became a Conservative MP. Reputed to be one of London's best-dressed men, he mixed continually in what the popular press is apt to call fashionable society. On the surface, he would appear to be a gilded butterfly, in spite of the fact that he was a world traveller. Gilded he certainly was, but there was nothing of the butterfly about him. At least there wasn't to me, who knew him only as a commanding officer, and as a friend, too. I always admired him from the first day I saw him. This tall, beautifully turned out man of affairs, I had plenty of chance to see him. At one time I was intelligence officer at RHQ, and later I was his L.O. to the brigadier, and just before I left the regiment, I commanded the RHQ troop of tanks, the colonel's troop. When he took over command of the regiment at first, I do not think that he was frightfully popular with the men. There was a great deal of spit and polish about him, and he made the, made the men in our idle days keep busy and would not tolerate either sloppiness or slovenliness. At first the men got browned off, but as time went on they began to appreciate his qualities of leadership more and more. When I knew him he was a very moderate man and a hard worker. He smoked little and drank less, and he was in the prime of life, being aged about 40. He took a great interest in the men and was always pleasant to his subalterns. It was not only his outward qualities that I admired, but his inner life. Louis was so debonair and so guarded, his mind was broad and flexible. The thing that used to amaze me about him was his astonishing ability to quote the Bible. It's very difficult to get over one's feeling about this man on paper without appearing gushing, but he was a great man. He was one of the people that I felt fate would not allow to be killed. I was very upset with fate. Jackie Whiting was not my best friend in the regiment, but certainly he was one of my closest intimates. Mentally, we had little in common. His interests were different from mine. Riding was the one about which we were jointly enthusiastic, but Jack Whiting knew far, far more about horses than I ever will. He also he also had not met until he also I had not met until the war began. Jack's great quality is that he is typically English, a typical yeoman. He was extraordinary in no way at all, except in his ability to smile, and it was a warm, permanent smile that came right from the heart. A great number of people's smiles are very artificial, but not Jack's. He was always smiling. This does not mean to say that he went around the place as a permanent ray of sunshine, such is not the case. He was pretty good at grumbling. But nevertheless, he would always end up with a smile. Jack was not clever. He was not a brilliant leader, but he would go anywhere at any time and not count the cost. He did not suffer from the ability to think things out too carefully. He was clean and wholesome, and I never heard him tell a, a muddy... He was clean and wholesome never heard him tell a smutty story, yet when he became annoyed he could swear and curse like any trooper. He was utterly devoid of any. He was utterly devoid of any sued and equally devoid of any false modesty. Jack was intensely popular wherever he went, Mostly, I think, for his healthy sense of humor. It's difficult to explain why his loss should have been felt so keenly by so many people. 
think perhaps it was because here was a person so typically English, so devoid of bitterness being caught up, uncomplaining in the vastness of war about being destroyed. Flash was killed by a bomb just after he left the regiment to become second in command of a brigade. He was one of the few officers in the regiment who went the whole way from Alamein to Marath unscathed, and in the end, just as he was at last on his day, his way to military fame and glory, the Stuka got him. They always said that a Stuka would get him. When Jack Whiting was killed, he was the regimental navigating officer. He had led the regiment up to the enemy in what was one of their first advances as an armored formation. The enemy opened fire, and there was absolutely no reason why Jack, who was in a jeep and couldn't fire back, should not have returned. His part of the job was over, but he stayed there in his jeep, not wanting, I suppose, to set a bad example by turning back. A splinter from a shell killed him instantly. The recitation of the death of other people does not necessarily make good reading. Yet death is so much a part of modern war that one cannot ignore it or disguise it. I think it is quite true to say that with exceptions, the war takes the best. The best you see are nearly always in the front. Yours, Stuart. Letter 23. Mother dear, so you want to know what my ideas of the post-war world are, and particularly what you think of our relations with the Americans. You say that now I've been away from England for nearly four years, my views might prove a contrast to those of people of my own age still at home. About the post-war, I have many ideas, but precious few beliefs. If the war has thrown up one... If the war has thrown up once again the courage and nobility of man, it has clearly illustrated the machinations, hypocrisy, and shiftiness of nations, and sometimes of individuals. One would have thought it no longer necessary to prove by warfare mankind's ability to suffer and fight on. Men answer to life's heroic call. One would think that what is really necessary is to prove for once, if not finally, that mankind can be free from hypocrisy, double meaning, and general shiftiness. My predominant impression of the British soldier's post-war aim is that he wants to go back home to his own people. He wants to be with his wife again, to smoke the kind of tobacco that he fancies, and to breed pigeons and to waste his food if need be. He wants security for his wife, his children, and himself. Perhaps he will desire so much security that he will tend to forget that striving brings the greatest rewards. I've dealt in the past 18 months so much with European peoples that I'm not going to write about the continent here, and after all, there are so many experts. What would I like to see in England? Equality of opportunity. If people have the ability to make fortunes, let them. If they have the talent to become pianists, give them equal opportunity to develop that talent. Let every child of woman start equal. If one, by hard work, tenacity, and enterprise, can earn £2,000 a year at 25, good luck to him. Whilst if another is in debt at the age of 35, bad luck to him. But never let it be said that they did not start equal. This does not mean that I believe that all public schools should be burnt to the ground, or that the names of Eton and Harrow and Winchester should be erased from all records. The British public school is part of the British tradition. I do not want to see British ideas perish, but prosper. These schools must be preserved, but not to the extent that some wretched, acquisitive, 
These schools must be these schools must be preserved, but not to the extent that some wretched, acquisitive, cat-bullying bounder should be permitted entry to a public school just because his father made money at other people's expense. This, incidentally, I do not consider to be the typical public schoolboy, and that some worthier son of the country should be excluded. Public schools should be retained, but they should be stocked by a process of selection from the boys at council schools, and all boys in their earlier years should go to council schools. It should be the reward of youthful talent and character to go to a public school, not the right of money. Of course, you realize that I'm not speaking um, as an embittered young man. I had a good education. For four years after leaving school, I worked and traveled, and when this war broke out, I was just 22. I was in the Inns of Court Regiment and the Nottingham, Nottingham, and the Nottinghamshire Yeomanry. Although I'm not a blue blood, my way has been made easy for me socially. But I consider it iniquitous that my son, if God blesses me one thus, should have more right to a decent education than a son of a bus conductor of the LPTB. If my son can earn a fortune for himself by the time he is 30, let him keep his fortune. If he does not do a stroke of work after 30, but devotes all his time to playing tiddlywinks, that is his own affair, except that every man should be employed in some way in public service. The other idea I have firmly fixed in the back of my mind is that the state should control the medical service. In the army, a brigadier gets no better medical brains or service at his disposal than I do or than a private gets. He may get more comfort, but that is not unnatural. Position and responsibility must bring certain compensations. But that the wife of a successful film actor can receive better treatment than the wife of a hall fisherman because she has more money in her handbag is definitely antisocial. Well, those are just about all the post-war views of yours that yours truly possess on the internal administration of the UK. Since this war began, I've seen plenty of Americans. I come to one fundamental conclusion. That if the US, that if the UK and the USA cannot get together and work together after the war is over, then certainly no other nations can. It's no question of forming a power-loving block or a hegemony. It's plain common sense cooperation. I'm sick and tired of hearing British I'm sick and tired of hearing British criticize Americans or Americans criticizing the British. The Americans are our real allies. Without their help it would not be possible to win the war. We are true friends of America. In saving ourselves we saved America. We are dependent on one and another. I like Americans. I make no bones about it. I like them. They have their faults, so have we. We are not so apt, our two countries, to go searching around for each other's faults that we cannot or will not see the good points. I like Americans. Personally, I want to make friends with them, because I don't like the way they chew gum does not seem to say I don't like Americans. A man once wrote a book called Union Now. The trouble was that a large number of people were to be unified at once. Let's union let union be a gradual growth, but let it start now. Let it start between ourselves and the Americans. What I say now may be bad policy and unpopular, but I do not care. What I long for, what I want to see is a complete union between the British Commonwealth of Nations and the USA. Well, there you are, mother, my sweet. 
Soon I hope to be home with you bringing my beautiful wife. But whilst we, you and I and our friends, remember and cherish the deeds of our own countries, let us remember one other thing. Although we desire as individuals alliance with America, and although we admire the valor of the Russians, let us not forget one country that took the first German assault in all its fresh fury. Let us not forget Poland. Love, Stuart. Letter 24. Mother dear, over the past two or three days I've been thinking about the last letter I wrote you. Life is so full of teeming interest both during war and peace that the airy yet rather dogmatic way I laid down what I thought should happen may seem a little absurd. I believe that one can read too much. The more one thinks round a problem, the more one sees its many aspects and sides. When one realizes that the other man, too, has a point of view, one is on... When one realizes that the other man, too, has a point of view, one is on one's way to compromise. It is apparent, I think, that there must be certain sociological changes in Britain, but it's dangerous madness to suggest that some people do, that by spoiling the blood of a couple of million people, one can achieve anything except anarchy. I do not like anarchy. Another thing is that it's awfully difficult to talk understandingly about Britain and the British people when one has been away from the country for nearly four years. Yet my peacetime work, visiting factories for the firm, took me through the slums of every city except Plymouth. I've been to Bury and Bolton and seen the work the wives do. I've been to the Rhondda Valley and I've seen how men live. These things have left a marked impression on me. Yet even now I cannot give myself to the idea that in order to improve the standard of the multitude, one must smash and destroy everything that has already been built up. It is as though one said about London, supposing that a new London was being planned and built. Oh, pull the whole city down. Don't leave a brick standing and tear up the roads. Some people would like to do just that, instead of pulling down the unhygienic, the grotesque, and the ugly. For heaven's sake, let's be sane after the war and keep a sense of values. I've been wondering if the Bloomsbury type will re-emerge after the war. The collection of pimply, bespeckled, languor pseudo-intellects, the type who used to group themselves around the League of Nations Union Youth Group, of which I myself was once a member. These gentlemen and their Frenchian-theoried sisters and girlfriends, who used to congregate over cups of coffee in a falsely created aesthetic atmosphere, always gave me a pain in the neck. They weren't honest labor, nor were they dynamic nor were they dynamic communists in for a tough struggle. They were just plain wishy-washy. In burrows scattered about the place, these gentry lie low whilst the war progresses, and as room for the national emergency ceases, they will lift high again their startled heads and resume their activities like nibbling rabbits let loose on green pastures. These people nibble at ideas. They never get hold of anything thoroughly. They will rush up and down the countryside, planning minor leagues for minor matters and attempting to organize everybody into new orders. They are non-productive, non-decorative members of society. They talk of Karl Marx glibly, never read and talk of slums and mining areas which they never visit. To this type it is more important to teach the children of agricultural workers appreciation of surrealistic art than it is to see that the self-same children have shoes on their feet. 
During this war, I'd hoped to feel the call to religion or the need of it more deeply in this war. I wanted to become religious like you. What I like about your spiritual outlook is that you are not the least churchy. I've prayed in this, and I'm sorry to say that it's only been when I've been very frightened, very worried, or wanted something very badly. Prayer must be made, I suppose, a habit, a pleasant habit. The future of the established churches and of clerics is going to be very interesting in the coming years. In a way, you know, I'm not so homesick for England as might be expected, probably because I realize that life in the UK today is not what it was in the past, what it is going to be in the future. Also, life has been stimulatingly also life has been stimulating and interesting. Perhaps those of us who were 22 when war broke out were the ideal age, if any age can be ideal to go to war. But nevertheless, in some ways, we've been lucky. We weren't snatched from shore and given no. We weren't snatched from shore and given no chance to see what the great peacetime world was really like. We managed to get three or four years' experience in business or go to a university. Those years between 18 and 22 are vitally important. Nor were we snatched rather pathetically, nor were we snatched rather pathetically from the bosoms of our ever-loving wife. Supposing this war ends this year or next, we'll be able to pick up the, the threads once again at the reasonable age of 27 or 28. It might be worse. The man I feel sorriest for in this war is he who had just got himself established in a business or profession, was married with one or more children. To be snatched away at such a time is bad luck. The only consolation is that he alone has not suffered. I cannot tell you how much I'm looking forward to seeing you again. Three years and nine months is quite a spell, and I and I've drawn great consolation from the fact that I've been that I've done well over half my time overseas. In a matter of months, maybe I'll be seeing you again. It has been a long wait for you, and I've missed you very much. My 27th birthday approaches. This isn't to remind you of the fact. And I've been so lucky up to now. And so many have died or been maimed, it may seem banal. Sometimes I feel a twinge in my conscience that I've not seen more action. And there's not much consolation to realize that other people have seen less but I came overseas confidently expecting to have been liquidated in a year or so. Fortunes of fate have so proved friendly towards me. Although life has been interesting, I miss many things. The sight of the little green fields again, and London buses with the rain streaming down. I want to see the underground again, and Loch Katrine. How badly I desire to walk down Prince's Street. I am impatient for the day when I can again travel in an express train, however crowded. I want to see English stables again and to go into a pin table saloon. I want to have tea with you in Cambridge. I want to read an honest evening paper again and to see a robin eating crumbs in the snow. What I want to see most What I want to see most of all are the white cliffs of Dover or any other British cliffs, Liverpool docks or London docks or the Merseyside. Goodbye for now, darling. Love, Stuart. So with that, we've come to the end of Stuart's letters. I hope you've enjoyed this selection. Um, I hope you've enjoyed listening to this reading of his letters. I think uh, quite an amazing account he gives, and quite different because he's 
over quite a long period of time and going to many different places. He sees action in Egypt, some in the Middle East, but spends much of the time in administration and sort of working uh, to keep things going. His interaction with the Poles is very interesting, and you can tell from his writing that he was incredibly passionate, uh, fascinated by the Polish army and the Polish people in general, and had a great love for them. So too with the Americans. He seems to have really come to love the American way of life, um, the American soldier. He sees the best in people and really appreciates what they had done for the war effort. And more importantly, I think, recognize the importance of the relationship between Britain and America and that this was going to be the way forward. In many ways, he's echoing a lot of the sentiments that Churchill would say, uh, would voice after the war. That this was a relationship that had to continue. And it really kind of sets the stage for sort of moving into the Cold War. He sets the stage very nicely for what is going to happen in Britain uh, post-war. Uh, in the post-war era. I think it's very interesting that he clearly has an idea of what he wants Britain to be. He wants part of the old Britain, but he also wants it to be better. And this is something which has very much been um, talked about a lot in the historiography of uh, post-war Britain, and indeed in the war years itself, that out of the experience of the Blitz and the war effort, uh, people wanted a more fair society, and we see that with Stuart's letters. This doesn't mean that he wants to get rid of what he thought was important, but what he wants is equality. He wants everyone to have a better chance. And this was the foundation of things like the NHS. Everyone has a right to good health care. Um, so it shouldn't matter that you're rich or poor. Give everybody a chance, and if you do that, the country will be stronger. One of the other things that really sort of stands out for me in this, in his account, is the simple fact that you can see how he's transformed by the experience. When he leaves England to go on active duty, he's, he's somewhat naive. He spent all of his time in England. He doesn't really know what foreign countries look like, um, what the experience will be. And he is transformed as an individual by this. He comes to greatly appreciate the places he's seen, even though some of them are, you know, quite poor, impoverished, um, you know, the, the climate and so on is quite difficult sometimes. He faces a lot of hardship, and the poor fellow is ill with jaundice and malaria on numerous occasions uh, and undergoes, you know, extreme uh, terror with the, uh, um, the strafing that was happening during the Battle of Tobruk. But he comes out of this a, a different person one who really appreciates life, appreciates interacting with other cultures and how important that is. So I think that there's a real message here, particularly maybe in this age of Brexit. Um, he sees the value of having these connections with a broader world, and he hopes that this is what would bring Britain forward, would give it a good future. It has to develop, um, it has to encourage these connections, and this would make Britain a much better place, particularly because he does recognize things are going to be more difficult after the war. Britain is going to face austerity. And this would happen right through into the sort of mid-1950s. It's, it's not going to be the same kind of life that people in Britain had prior, but he hopes that it's going to be one which is fair to all.
And finally, I thought I should just say a few words about the manuscript itself. I love documents like this. I'm a big fan of any kind of historical documents, and there's so many different varieties that you can use as a source of history. Accounts like this are incredibly rich. Yes, this is something that may have its problems. It is written sort of after the fact, not as the events are happening, but it's immediately after the fact. And so there is a real um, quality to it. I think um, there's lots of detail and you can tell that he is writing this uh, from memory and he understands sort of the events that he was taking part in. It is difficult at times because with a document like this, often there was no punctuation. Um, it's a type document. Uh, sometimes words are missing. He left blanks in place because he didn't want to say a particular word or where a particular place was where they were serving. Um, some of it is difficult to read. Clearly there's spelling mistakes and things. Um, so it, it hasn't gone through an editorial process, but that is what makes it so special that you've got a kind of a raw document and it hasn't been edited like a published work, which maybe is tidied up and cleaned and, you know, some of the language changed. This is just how this soldier felt. This is how he expressed himself. And generally, he expresses himself very well and creates an incredibly interesting and captivating story, which I hope you enjoyed.